Well, good afternoon, brethren. It's a delight to be here with you today. Certainly want to express appreciation for the beautiful special music. It always adds a lot to the service to have that. Boy, what a week that this has been. What a week this has been. You know, as the week opened, there were a lot of questions about what was going on in Europe with the European debt crisis, a lot of questions about how Germany would respond, the future of the euro, the, uh, the ability of the European Union to, to move forward. And what an interesting week this has been, as those questions, some of those have been answered. This week, Germany, on its own, put forward very stark austerity measures, laid these down for various other countries inside the European Union. You know, these measures, these regulations were not greeted with joy. They were greeted instead by riots and protests. German Finance Minister Wolfgang Schauble recently stated that coordination between the Euro members must be more far-reaching and they must take, them, take an active part in each other's policy-making. Now, when Germany says that we must take an active part in each other's policy-making, they mean we will tell you what to do, and you will do it. In fact, um, the German finance minister is, uh, in another speech said if you, he was uh, addressing a lot of alarm and a lot of questions as the other member countries were upset by Germany's actions. And he uh, defended his government's decisiveness by saying, if you want to drain a swamp, you don't ask the frogs for an objective assessment of the situation. This was from the Financial Times, May 20th. No doubt, no, uh, very crystal clear how Germany sees itself and its role compared to that of the other members of the EU. What an amazing week. We've got uh, an excellent commentary on the website right now, uh, Liberty or Austerity by uh, Wyatt Seselka. It goes into a little more detail on the uh, European debt crisis and, and uh, the events of the last week. But, you know, as this crisis has, is spreading, fears and uncertainty and concern are not being tamped down. You know, Germany's measures are intended to contain the crisis. And yet at the end of the week, the, the, the terms being used are that we are perhaps on the cusp of another Great Depression. They're referring to what lies ahead is perhaps a Great Depression, too. On Thursday, the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had the worst plunge in over a year. There are a combination of storms. You've heard the, the expression of the perfect storm. Well, on the European front, we've got the European debt crisis. On the American front, there's another wave 
of adjustable rate mortgages that are getting ready to reset their mortgage rate or the interest rate is resetting up. That happens in September. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear about what that's going to mean for the American economy. And in this age, all of our economies are linked together. A disaster in one part of the world has a great impact in other parts of the world as well. There are problems in China. Monetary tightening over in China. In fact, it was reported recently that there was an 80% drop in the number of property transactions in Beijing in the first half of May compared to the previous month. You know, these, these headlines, these news stories are not good news for many. They fan the fear, they fan the frustration, they fan the uncertainty. Credit markets affect jobs. Jobs affect crime. You know, what will these things mean for you, for your job security, for your ability to stay in your home? What will these things mean for crime, for your safety? You know, we live in exciting times, but also in sobering times. We live at the end of an age, a time when all of those who God's servants, those who served God down through history, long to know and understand what it would be like at the end of the age prior to Christ's return. There are many warnings about what that time would be like. A very sobering picture is painted. And we live at a time where we see these events unfolding. We see in Europe, Germany taking a lead role. Just as the church has prophesied for decades, going back to the 1950s, Mr. Armstrong talked about a German-dominated revival of the Holy Roman Empire. And that idea was, was trashed, poo-pooed, and yet we see that unfolding right now. You know, many don't know where things are going. We here in this room have been given a great calling, an opportunity to understand the significance of the headlines we read. To understand not only what's taking shape, but to understand more importantly what comes next, what lies beyond. And so as many of our friends, our neighbors, have great feelings of fear, concern, and uncertainty for the future, and how they will be affected by the events unfolding, we here have been given a gift. We don't have to be caught up in that same fear and uncertainty. Well, brethren, this afternoon, I would like for us to examine what God reveals about Himself as our protector. With all the uncertainty and fear that's going on, with all of the events that we see taking shape, It's important for us to refocus, to make sure our focus is not on the physical, but is instead on the spiritual. That we're not caught off guard and alarmed by the events in the news. 
But instead, those events should drive us to our knees, help us to draw closer to our Creator. Let's begin by turning to Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, we're going to notice Christ's words as we focus on this relationship that we have with our God, our Father in heaven as our protector, let's begin by noticing what His intent is, what His desire is. Matthew chapter 23, and in verse 37, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. What a beautiful word picture that Christ portrayed, described right here, that this desire, how often I wanted this this was his desire to protect his flock. You know, when there's a, a hawk or something that soars overhead, mother hen clucks and gathers those little chicks up in that protective envelope of her wings. They're safe. They're next to her. That's the relationship that God wants with us. Christ says, how often I wanted to do this, but you were not willing. You know, he was kept from that. Not by his desire, but instead by the actions of those that he was addressing. Let's go to Psalm 91. We'll see more about this. In Psalm 91... We see more about the safety that God provides. In verse 1, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. You know, when I read these words, I think about our currency. In God we trust. And yet we live in a country that no more trusts in God. That rejects the label as a, of a Christian nation. Does not consider itself to be a Christian nation. But rather a nation that does have Christians in it. But we read here about an approach, about an attitude. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. Verse 3, Surely He shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. Verse 4, He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. So again, that reference to that relationship that a mother hen has with her chicks. That mother hen has a great fervent desire to protect her brood. It's not something that's forced upon her. She desires it. 
God desires to protect His children. Verse 5, You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Verse 7, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you. So we see here this, this protection that God desires to protect us with. Verse 14, Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. So this relationship, it's important to recognize and remember that this is the relationship that God desires to have with us. Often when we're in trouble and we're crying out to God, it seems like immediately there's no answer. And we cry again. And yet it's important to remember from God's perspective, this is the relationship that God wants to have. This is the relationship that He wants to have. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. Verse 6, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. You know, God's Word is a lamp to our feet. It guides and directs our steps. And as we follow in that, as we receive this, this wisdom that comes from God, it keeps us, it protects us from so many of the pitfalls of life. You know, often when I talk with somebody who's older and is coming into the truth, beginning to have their mind open to understand God's Word, they make the comment, oh, how I wish I had learned this years ago. The trouble, the heartache, the grief that I could have been spared. God's Word protects us. It gives us wisdom. It keeps us. Verse 8, He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of His saints. God does. He guards the paths of justice. He preserves the way of His saints. God's desire is to have that relationship with us as a hand towards her chicks, that He protects us from danger, that He is our safety, that we trust in Him. Now, as we look at this relationship, there are two parts. There is God's desire what He wants, what He intends, what He is capable of doing. And there's our part. There's our part, our actions. 
And our part affects our relationship with God. Our part, our actions, our approach affects the degree to which we experience God's protection. Let's go back to uh, Psalms. Let's this time to Psalm 3. Psalms 3. We'll notice David's words. Beginning in verse 1. Lord, how they have increased who trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Just just think for a moment about David's prayer here, these words. David is crying out to God, explaining to God the danger, the trouble that he's in. Now, certainly we know that God is aware of everything. When we come before God in prayer, we're not giving Him new information. God's already aware of the details. He knows our innermost thoughts of our heart. But yet He has told us to come before Him, to make our needs known before Him with thanksgiving, that everything in balance. And yet, as David is is describing here his situation, he says how they have increased who trouble me. In other words, since the last time we talked, things have gotten worse. Remember what I told you before? It's worse now. They have increased against me. In fact, it's increased to the point where David says that his enemies are saying, not even God can help him now. Verse 3, But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. So although physically nothing looks like it has changed for the good, you know, his enemies are increasing, and yet when he cries out to God, he's not rattled. He's not shaken. He says with assurance, you are a shield for me. He talks about how he cried out to God and God heard his prayer. You know, that's important to remember. When we cry out to God for help, for mercy, for deliverance, for protection, for guidance... If things don't get better immediately, there's this thought that our adversary sends to us. This thought that perhaps God doesn't hear us. And yet David here describes, you know, God hears me. I cried to the Lord with my voice and He heard me from His holy hill. That God hears us. He hears His saints. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. You know, our part in our relationship with God, as we relate to Him as our protector, our safety, our salvation, one aspect of that is trust. 
trust that is not, where we're not hedging our bet. Our full and complete trust is vested in Him. We're not hedging our bet. We're not straddling the fence. That our full trust is in Him. Remember what Christ said to the Laodiceans? I wish you were hot or cold. You know, God doesn't want fence straddlers. He wants us to be one way or the other. To commit with our whole heart. That we would commit our trust to Him with our whole heart. David describes this in action. He says, I lay down and slept. Now think about the trials that you've been through. When your stomach's churning and you're worried, you can't lay down and sleep. You can lay down. You can toss and turn. But sleep is elusive. You know, David says, I lay down and slept. He trusted in God. And as a result of putting his worries, his fears, because physically, remember, his enemies have multiplied against him. Physically, the danger has grown to the point where they're saying not even God can help him now. And yet he has taken those concerns and those fears and those worries and he's laid them at God's feet, knowing that God hears this. God is seeing this. Having turned it over to God, he was able to lay down and sleep. He was able to to say with confidence that he would not be afraid of ten thousands of people. Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. You know, David is describing not what has already happened, but what he still needs. You know, his enemies have been multiplied, and yet he's turning the problem over to God. With confidence, knowing that God hears that prayer. And yet at the same time, he's reminding God, I still need your help. Arise, save me. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. So David here is describing, again, this special relationship that God has with His people, with those that know and fear His name. Let's go to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We'll notice this further. That we must have our full and complete trust in God. In Psalm 119, let's notice verse 114. We read of God, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. I hope in your word. Brethren, that's the only hope is in God's word. Our hope is in God's word. Physically around us, we see all sorts of dangers, of injustice. Great tragedies, some man-made, 
such as this spill that we have off in the Gulf of Mexico that there doesn't seem to be any containment for. The end is uh, no more in sight at the end of the week than it was at the beginning of the week. And yet, where will it end? Our hope is in God's Word. Only His Word describes the end. Describes what comes next. Describes the significance, why these things must take place. Our hope is in God's Word. There is no other hope. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 13. In Hebrews chapter 13... We're going to begin in verse 5. We're told to let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Now often when we think of covetousness and, and contentment, we think in terms of blessings. But the same applies to trials. When we're going through our trial, we need to be content with our trials and not envious of our neighbor's. Have you ever noticed that your neighbor never seems to have it as bad as you do? They always seem to, to slide through with a little bit easier time of things. And yet the Scripture says, Be content with such things as you have. For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? I will never leave you nor forsake you. What a tremendous promise that we have. What a tremendous promise. And just to make sure we get the point in verse 8, we're told that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change His mind. He didn't make that promise and then later say, you know what, on second thought, I take that back. He said he's the same. He does not change. Whatever we face, whatever we are up against, we're not up against it alone on our own strength, on our own horsepower. We have Christ's promise that He will not leave us, He will not forsake us. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. We see that Christ promising His disciples that in Matthew chapter 28. The end of the book of Matthew, verse 18. Christ is speaking to His disciples. He says, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This was a promise, a commission, a charge to His disciples, not just those who heard His voice, but to His disciples down through time. That He would be with them. 
until the end of the age that they would not, in that sense, that they would not be without him, that he would be there. You know, God expects that for us to be able, for him to be able to protect us, that we must trust in him with our whole heart. Not hedging our bet, not trying to work something out, kind of having a plan B, a fallback plan, a way that we can work things out on our own, but that our whole and complete trust would be in him. He says, I will never leave you, that he will be with his disciples to the end of the age. But our full and complete trust must be in him. We can't try to work things out on our own. You know, the scriptures are filled with examples of this type of trust in action. Let's go to 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're going to notice one such example. 2 Kings chapter 6. We have here a rather humorous uh, account. In verse 8, we're told about the, uh, the king of Syria was making war with Israel. That he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place which the man of God had told them. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. So this happened again and again. You know, when the prophets of God have foretold events of the future, the naysayers have always ridiculed what was said. And when it's come to pass, they have always uh, tried to chalk it up to coincidence. And yet, what we're told here is this happened more than just once or twice. This was very clearly not coincidence. Verse 11, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? You can just imagine the frustration as he gathers his cabinet together. He says, Will you not show me? Which of us is for the king of Israel? And notice their response. Verse 12. None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So his, his fame was far and wide. Now, let's just take at face value what's been said that they're reporting to the king that the things that you whisper in your bedroom, he knows. So with that in mind, the king says, well, go and find out where he is and bring him to me. Now, if he knows the things that the king whispers in his bedroom, is he not going to know that the king of Syria has now sent out a posse to go and arrest him? <laughs> so he, he found word of where he was, and he sent... Uh, verse 14, horses and chariots and a great army there. 
And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. The Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, and I pray with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Verse 19, Elisha said, This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. You know, a rather funny end to the story. <laughs> Here they sent this army out by night to sneak up on them. Elisha's servant goes out and sees it and is terrified. And Elisha cries out to God and asks God to open his servant's eyes. There's no indication here that Elisha saw what his servant saw. Elisha trusted in God with his whole heart. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Elisha trusted in God. There wasn't a plan B. God was it. God heard his prayer, worked it out in an amazing way. The army was struck with blindness. The one who they were seeking actually led them. And they were following. <laughs> you know, what a sight that must have been. You know, God has a sense of humor. You know, often when we are in trouble, when we see the need for God's help and intervention, we cry out to God and we have our own scenario of how it will work out. We have the script prepared and, and we kind of read the script to God and, and ask Him to play His part. God, this is what I, you know, I've got it all figured out. This guy's giving me a hard time, and if you will just do this. God doesn't work that way. When we look through Scripture and we see His intervention, we're clearly not reading a, a, a script that man wrote. You know, the Scriptures are filled with examples where men and women of God put their full trust in God. They didn't have some plan B. Their full trust was in God. And God heard their prayer, their cry, saw them step forward and act on faith. Well, faith is more than just words and prayer. Faith shows up in our actions. You know, when we read earlier in Psalms 3, about David talking about how he trusted in God. It was obvious from David's actions that David had turned the worry for the problem over to God. If we're still worrying about it, have emotional energy invested in it, all wrapped up in, in what's going on, then we haven't really gotten out of the way and given the problem to God to solve. We're still trying to figure it out and Get our way in there. Our full 
trust and faith must be in God in order for Him to intervene in the way that He desires to do. Let's notice another aspect of this relationship, another aspect of our part. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 26. In Leviticus chapter 26, we have very, very familiar chapter. We have here the promise of blessings and the promise of cursings and things gone wrong. God begins verse uh, 1 and 2 by giving instruction that they should not make idols, that they should keep His Sabbath, that they should reverence His sanctuary, Verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and perform them, then I will give you rain in its season. The the land shall yield its produce, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last to the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full. And dwell in your land safely. I will give peace in the land. And you shall lie down and none will make you afraid. That can't really be used to describe our country today. We lie down and we have code orange, we have code yellow, we have code red. These various alert levels. It's because we as a nation have not walked in His statutes. We have not kept His commandments. We instead have sought to remove them from every public edifice, to remove them from our public places. We want God, as a nation, we want God out of our lives. And yet God says, if you will obey me and do this, this is what I will do for you. Verse 9, I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. Verse 11, I will set my tabernacle among you. My soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. You know, that intimate relationship that God desires, that He would walk among us, that we would be His people, that He would be our God. And yet, verse 14, But if you do not obey Me, and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise My statutes, or if your soul abhors My judgments, so that you do not perform all My commandments, but break My covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you and wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. You shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be defeated by your enemies. You know, we have a choice. We could either obey God and have Him walk among us or we can reject God and have Him set His face against us. We're living at a time when our country has set its face against God. 
God has set is removing His blessings from our peoples. And I'm sure that it breaks your heart as it breaks mine to see this once great nation, great because of the blessings of God, the obedience of our forefather Abraham, that it's very sad, very sobering to see those blessings withdrawn. And yet, there's a very clear connection between protection and obedience. And the rejection of God, the disobedience towards God, and all sorts of calamities. There God goes on to describe in great detail how He will break the pride of your power, how He will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze, how He describes all sorts of disasters, military defeats, natural disasters. And yet, those things don't have to be if our peoples would turn to God with their whole heart. Let's go to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. We'll see this theme between obedience and God's protection filled in. Remember, this is God's desire. God didn't start out describing the curses. He started out describing the blessings. What He wants to do. You know, a, a loving parent, a perfect parent, which none of us are perfect, but a loving parent delights in doing good things for their children. Our Father in Heaven delights in doing good things for His children. And yet sometimes for the benefit of our children, it's necessary for us to tell our children no. Sometimes children don't understand. You know, when my children would like a big bowl of ice cream late at night, they don't understand that it's bedtime. It's for their good. Not my good, their good. You know, it's the same with us and God. God delights in doing good things for us, but for our own protection, our own benefit, He must set constraints. In Psalm 18, beginning in verse 1, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. You know, notice there is no backup plan. God is it. That's it. You know, His whole trust is in God. The pangs of death surround me. The floods of ungodliness make me afraid. 
The sorrows of Sheol surround me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God, and he, he heard my voice from his temple. My cry came before him, even to his ears. You know what's being described right here, what's being visualized, is our prayer coming before God's ears. God hearing our prayer. Even sometimes before He has intervened. It's important for us to, to do that as well. That when we're crying out to God to visualize our cry ascending to His ears, to Him hearing our cry, even before He intervenes. Verse 16 describes, He sent from above, He took me, He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because He delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He has recompensed me. So he describes again this connection between obedience and God's blessing, God's intervention, God's bringing us protection, safety. Verse 30, As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in Him. Now, brethren, as we read these words, let's understand very clearly this connection between obedience and God's protection and blessing. Our obedience towards God is a prerequisite. It is necessary. We saw that in Leviticus 26. We see that, that theme expounded here. And yet, let's not, let's not misunderstand. In verse 20, it says, The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. God doesn't owe us protection. God doesn't owe us. This isn't something that we can... You know, sometimes people go through trials and they get frustrated with God. You know, what's, what's the problem? I, 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 I keep the Sabbath. I pay my tithes. I don't eat pork. You know, whatever the list is. People rattle them off and then they, they expect God, why haven't you done this? That's not what's described here. I think we all know and understand that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, God, we don't want what God owes us. The wages of sin is death. We don't want justice from God. We want mercy. We need mercy. We need forgiveness from God. Obedience is what God expects. If we love Him with our whole heart, it shows up in our actions. 
And we're able to have that close relationship. And as a result of that close relationship, when we cry out, He hears our cry. And He intervenes because He wants to. He delights to. He loves us. And He delights in helping us. You know, when my children come to me for help, I enjoy helping them. You know, those of you that are parents know that feeling. It's a great feeling when they stop trying to do it in frustration what they can't do. And they come and they ask. You know, warms the heart. You delight to, to intervene and to help them. So it is with us and God. That as we love God with our whole heart, it shows up in our actions. And we're able to have that close relationship. He hears our cry. And then He intervenes when we cry out to Him. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. We're going to notice here that even... Even in correction, even in, in cursings, even in, in the, the curses that we read about in Leviticus 26, let's notice God's approach. Let's notice that from God's perspective. In Ezekiel chapter 18, uh, beginning verse 31, Let's begin in verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. God's desire is that we would turn and live. You know, those that reject God, that God must discipline, that God must deal with with a firm hand, God doesn't enjoy that. No, a perfect and a loving Father must provide constraints, must provide discipline for His children. But He does not enjoy, does not delight in, gets no pleasure from that punishment. His desire is that He would get their attention, that they would finally, get themselves a new heart and a new spirit, that they would finally turn to Him and obey, follow His instructions. You know, God's Word keeps us from so many of life's pitfalls. You know, if we're going to have this relationship with God as our protector, we must put our full and complete trust in Him. We must obey Him. Let's notice another, another key. Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, this is 
after Christ had fasted and the tempter was coming to him to test the Messiah. In verse 6, Satan said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give His angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot upon a stone. And Jesus said to him, verse 7, is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. So one key to availing ourselves of God's protection is not to tempt Him, not to take foolish risks, not to do things that we know are stupid. That we're not to tempt God just because God desires to have this intimate relationship and protect us. That we shouldn't abuse that, take advantage of that. That we should still conduct our activities with wisdom, with discretion, with discernment. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to notice another key. Proverbs chapter 3. In Proverbs 3, we read in verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. You know, there's sometimes when that's a little easier to perform than others. And yet, even when it's difficult to perform, that is what we must do. You know, we can't guarantee our own safety. We can't, on our own, provide for our own safety. God is the one, the only one, who can promise safety and be in a position to perform it. And yet sometimes, particularly in relationships with others, when we're having trouble in our relationships, it's so easy and listen to that carnal voice inside saying, well, you know, maybe I, I just handle it this way. I just tell them this, or I could do that. And yet, that's not pleasing in God's sight. We're told to trust in the Lord with all your heart, to not lean on our own understanding. You know, at the point of baptism, we those that are baptized, came to a deep realization that of and by ourselves, we were capable of nothing. We could not, of and by ourselves, apart from God, we could not move forward. We could not have a life of happiness, a fulfilling life. And yet, from time to time, we have tests along the way that bring us back to that original point that we came to at baptism to help us reaffirm, recommit, strengthen that decision, that commitment to trust in God with all of our heart. Not partway, not mostly, not most of the time, but all of the time. 
Verse 13, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Verse 16, length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Happy are all who retain her. This is speaking of the wisdom and of the knowledge that comes from God's Word. That if we trust in that, if we fill our heart and our mind with that study, God's Word, dig out those principles of wisdom, that every decision of consequence that you face in life, the answers are found right here in principle. It's up to us to dig it out. To trust in God with all of our heart. Verse 21, My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, so they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of the sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. Notice it's not an if. You know, it's, it's speaking here to those that will trust in God with all their heart, that will have this knowledge and wisdom as ornaments of jewelry around their neck whose way will be guided by that so that they don't stumble. And yet it says... Nor don't be afraid of trouble from the wicked when it comes. That even in God's protection, that there is trouble from the wicked. Verse 26, For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your feet from being caught. So even though we will have trouble, that if our trust is in God, He will be our confidence. Let's go to Proverbs 22. Proverbs chapter 22. You know, as we read God's Word and study God's Word and drink in of the knowledge of the principles that are contained in here, and our lives, our steps, our paths are directed by these words. Proverbs 22 and verse 3. We're told a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. You know, God's Word allows us to deep insights. Allows us insights. Allows us, gives us discernment. We're able to see things sometimes before they take place. And as we do, we're told that a prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself. That there are sometimes physical steps. In Proverbs 21, in verse 31, we're told that the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but deliverance is of the Lord. Again, you know, there are physical steps sometimes that are wise, that are prudent. But yet, we should not be confused. 
that deliverance does not come from those steps. Does not come from whatever preparations we can make. Deliverance, true deliverance, is from the Lord. That if God is our full trust, and we're not hedging our bet, our full trust is in Him, then He will deliver us. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. It's important as we focus on God as our protector that we remind ourselves that we continue to go back to the foundation and ground ourselves on our aspects in this relationship. The requirement of faith and trust. That we can hold God back. We can keep Him from being able to intervene in our trials in the way that He desires if we're not doing our part. You know, God, verse uh, 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 7, we're told that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of a love and of a sound mind. God doesn't intend for us to be fearful, to go around being afraid, that as we see dangers in the news, as we... Uh, see various trials in our personal lives, we should not be filled with a sense of fear and worry. That we've not been given a spirit of fear. God's spirit is a spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit of a sound mind. You know, as we understand this, as we remind ourselves of this, when, not if, but when we encounter trials and troubles, we don't have to be filled with fear and worry. It is we feel those emotions inside. We can turn to the Scripture, following the examples that we see here, and turn those worries, those concerns that we have, over to God. That He will deliver us. That He will be our confidence. And as we do that, we're able to enjoy the intimacy of this relationship that God intends. And yet, it's important that we understand that this intimate relationship that we have with God is not without great trials. You know, let's think about the men and women who, whose examples are recorded. Think about the example in the Old Testament of the patriarch Job. The great trials that he went through. And yet, there was a purpose that was being worked out. Job lost his family. Job also had the understanding that he would see them again. And look forward to that. God also 
greatly blessed Job after his trial was over. Job had the enjoyment of that and the anticipation of seeing the remainder of his family again at Christ's return. You know, there are other examples. Think of the example of Naomi recorded in the book of Ruth. That she and her family left Israel. Now, why would they have to leave Israel? Because they couldn't make a living in Israel. Why couldn't they make a living in Israel? Because the nation had turned aside from God. And the nation was receiving the punishments that come as God's blessing was withdrawn. They had to leave. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She finally returned back home with one of her daughters-in-law. You know, great trials. And yet, you know, we can read the end of the book of Ruth that God gave her a, a grandbaby that she just uh, doted on, spoiled. And at Christ's return, she is going to be able to understand some of the purpose and some of what God was working out. We, we can read through the, the book of Ruth very quickly and we can see that God was working out the lineage of the Messiah. She had a part in that. And yet at the time, she had no knowledge of that. You know, we can think about others. The example of Stephen in the New Testament who was martyred. And yet, the example that he set, that as he was being stoned, crying out to God, asking for forgiveness for those that were killing him. You know, what a powerful witness and testimony. Certainly, we're, we're told about Paul's trials as well. You know, God desires to protect us. That's His desire. There are certain aspects in that relationship, roles that we play in terms of our obedience, in terms of our trusting Him with our whole heart, in terms of not tempting Him. And yet, we must understand that trials will come. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4. And that there is a purpose for them. 1 Peter chapter 4. A familiar, although perhaps somewhat uncomfortable scripture. 1 Peter 4 verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. You know, those are not in a sense, sweet words. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial. You know that there will be those grievous trials. And yet we're told not to think that this is some strange thing. Verse 13, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. 
the trial, the difficulty, the tribulation, it's not joyous. But the understanding of the purpose, that is where the joy comes. That we're able to have that understanding. Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. That God will test us for our benefit. That God desires to protect us. That God desires to intervene. That's an important thing to keep in mind because when we're crying out to God, it feels like we're the ones with this great need and and we're trying to motivate God in crying out to Him with, with zeal and with fervor. And yet it's not that way. We don't need to motivate God. God is already motivated. He desires to intervene. He's having to hold himself back sometimes. There's our part. If we're doing our part, and yet we're still going through trial and trouble, God is holding himself back because he wants to intervene. And yet there is a very important reason for that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll notice something here regarding the trials and troubles that we go through. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. You know, God's purpose in allowing us to go through trial and trouble is not that He would wear us down and break us. Not that He would grind us in. No, He says that He won't test us beyond what we're able God wants to see us succeed. He wants to see us flourish and grow and prosper. And so even in trials, God tells us that He's not going to lay it on us more than what we can bear. Now, we may not know how much we can bear, but God does. And He tells us that He will always provide a way of escape. He's not going to put us in a situation that we are unable to handle without His help. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. This is one of my favorite Scriptures in verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Sometimes this verse is very easy to understand. You go to work, everybody smiles and says hello and is friendly. Everything goes smoothly. No customer complaints. Performance review just 
sails right through. There's a raise. Car works perfect. Sun is shining. Birds are tweeting. It's easy to understand how all things work together for good. And yet, there are other times as well. This Scripture doesn't say most things most of the time. It says all things. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose. This means that even in the valley of the shadow of death, that even during the dark times, that this verse still applies when we're looking at the situation from the right perspective. That God, the God that we serve, is so powerful that He's able to bring good things out of bad situations. And that whatever we're in the middle of, He's able to turn around and to save us and to cause us to prosper and flourish and grow. If we will trust Him with our whole heart. What a wonderful promise. What a powerful Scripture. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, let's notice, beginning in verse 9, we see here the purpose for the trials we go through. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The captain of our salvation was made perfect through sufferings. It wasn't just the absence of sin, it was the absence of sin under pressure. Brethren, you and I are being brought to perfection the same way. God is our protector, our refuge, our fortress, our high tower. He desires to have that intimate relationship with us. He wants to protect us as a hen protects her chicks. This is a source of great comfort. It's a source of a peace of mind. And we're able to keep this in mind even when we're going through dark days, difficult times. It is a motivation. As we understand this, it is a motivation for us to draw even closer to God. 